This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at Upcase.com. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hey everybody, Ben here. Have a podcast ready for you. This is an interview with Tom Lehman of Genius. He's a co-founder and CEO of Genius, whose mission is to annotate the world. You might know them by their old name of Rap Genius, but now they are just genius. And a quick note before this interview starts, uh, this was my first interview on the road. I was without the assistance of the lovely Tom, and so the sound quality on this one is not what you're used to. Uh, I do apologize for that, but I think the interview is a good quality, so I think it's worth a slight extra ear strain to make it through. And also, I'm going to have Tom give me some tips so the next one is not quite so echoey. I hope you enjoy. Uh, so this is like the most atypical office I've been in for like a startup. It is a little bit weird. We're actually sitting now, believe it or not, in what used to be my living room of my home. Right. It actually looks much nicer now when I lived here, but, but yeah, I, I moved in here and that kind of set in motion a chain reaction, which caused our whole company to move here. And it started off as a one, three bedroom apartment. We yeah. just leased it after I commented, we said, well, we need an apartment or we need an office rather. And just, you know, there's a free apartment in my building. Let's do it. And, so we're in like an apartment building, like a fairly like this is an apartment luxury-ish apartment building. It's nice. It's on the water. Well, yeah, we're looking at nice on the views. what is this? The Hudson? This oh. is the East River. The East, East River. River. Okay. The Hudson is actually not a river. It's a tidal estuary. That's right. It's, uh, Edwin was telling me this. He was. He was. It's deeper than the body of water flows into, or something. Oh. This is addressed on an episode of The West Wing that I just saw. So that's the only reason why I know the answer to that. But gotcha. anyway, the East River, to my knowledge, is a river. It is out there and. You know, people jet ski on it, and we talk about doing that, so maybe we'll do that by the time this podcast comes out. Totally. Yeah, we, we jet skied a couple times. I'm just saying for the podcast readers, because like, this is coming out in the future. Oh, sure, there you go. Gotta, you jump in, you're forward projecting? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's exactly. good. By the time you hear this, you will have become like a pro be jet skier. Very, very tan. But we are getting a real office, or you know, we're building it out now. We leased it, we're building it. It is in Gowanus, uh, it is on... Uh, Which is in Brooklyn. It is in Brooklyn, yeah, South Brooklyn. So I guess you like you didn't want to continue with the apartment thing because it's it's interesting like as like a visitor coming in it's like oh wow I'm like in somebody's apartment basically but there are people here working which is kind of cool you have like a kitchen and like it feels comfortable and not kind of sterile like you often get with offices. There are definitely some positives to it when there's only one or two I think it's great. Mm. Uh, one thing that makes it great is you get like non-open plan working which I think is better. Obviously like yeah. this is a debate that people have and I'm pretty convinced that you don't want to have your main work environment be in a room with like 10 people or whatever I, you want I to totally come to agree with that you know zero one or two other people probably and that's what this encourages you know it's also nice to be able to shower nice to be able to have a private little bathroom stall we're taking that over to the new office so anyone out there listening if you are tired of timidly going to the bathroom in a room full of people and you want your own stall all the time come work at genius uh, or papa or th- you have own stalls we got that too yeah shit yeah um, but yeah, this was great for a period. It's fun now. There's a gym in the building. That's cool too. You can shower, you can make food, but it's just too hard to collaborate because you have to go in and out of different apartments and doors are slamming all over the place and it's just a pain. So we're basically at the point where we're feeling a lot of pain and, uh, you know, that's good. We waited, you know, until it really became an issue and now we're moving uh, somewhere real. Yeah. It's going to be fun. That's cool. So how, how many people then are going to be in the new office? So we're 25 now. Um, the new office—it's a pretty big space. We took a pretty big space because you know they were just building this new building, and it was really cool. And so you know the idea is you know it should hold about 100, 150 people as we expand. 
Uh, in the meantime, we'll probably sublet it to you know another cool company. I hope you know. Yeah, probably be like thirty or thirty-five people by the time we move in, and then we'll be able to grow up there till a couple hundred probably. Nice. So you're going to keep the idea of like small pods of people then, like private-ish offices? Yeah, I think private-ish offices and places to collaborate is basically good. So how's life these days? Life's good. Life's crazy, but good. You know, um, you know. to quote the West Wing, um, got a job that I like, my family's healthy. Uh, that's what Jed Bartlett says when he's asked whether he's like feeling stressed or whatever. And yeah. so yeah, life's good. I, you know, I got a job that I like, my family's healthy, my friends are healthy. There is some stress, but it's, it's also a lot of fun. Yeah. I talked to like a number of people that founders of companies, CEOs of companies, and they, it seems like a really common sentiment where they're like, it's almost impossible for me to separate my own like emotional state from like the fortunes of the company. And I've heard people like, I think it was Dan Martellus, I think it was Dan Martellus, like just like, I've given up on it. Right. Like, I've just like stopped trying to be like, I can separate these two things and realize like, I have to just give my all to this thing because it affects my mood so strongly. Do you feel that for yourself? In some sense, I think... You know, my emo- my personal emotional states are even way you know sort of more hair trigger than the company itself. In other words, like the sort of phase of the company doesn't probably oscillate that crazily like between a couple days or intraday. But based on like just what all the kind of stuff that I'm observing, you know, my internal state tends to like oscillate. You know, because like you know you're, it's constantly a process of getting people sort of aligned towards the same goal, the right goal, and excited about that. And then if you zoom back over the course of a week or a month, you know, work gets done and we proceed slowly. And it looks like you're proceeding sort of gradually or, you know, sort of consistently towards a goal. But then on a day-to-day basis, it's just constant realignment, constant sort of getting on the same page, especially, you know, in terms of building software projects. Like you've got to constantly be doing that. And so you can sort of leave a, a planning meeting thinking everyone's on the same page and then find out like you're not. And uh, you've got to like constantly be like thinking about that stuff and trying to fix that stuff. So... But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, on a, on a higher level, definitely my, you know, I live in this building. Sometimes I don't even leave this building. Right. Uh, sometimes I walk to the courtyard to get to my office. Sometimes I just go to the other elevator bank. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's a pretty apt metaphor. I think I'm pretty, like, intertwined with the company at this point. Uh, it's pretty hard to imagine in any other way. Yeah. Do you feel, like, pressure to put on a happy face for people? Or, like, a, a, like a confident, this is the direction face? I feel, well, it's, it's, you know, I feel pressure, not just through the company, but just in general, like you want to, you don't want to expose everyone in the world to your raw feelings all the time. And that's, yeah. you know, because emotions are, you know, you want to like feel something, sort of put it in context with what else you're feeling, what else is going on and express that to someone so they can actually do something useful based on what you think, right you know, and so it's tempting, especially when shit gets crazy or stuff goes wrong, it's easy to just, you know, expose your unfiltered emotions to other people. Right. You know, and sometimes that's helpful. One of the, uh, we have a corporate Cohen here. That was how someone put it recently. We have this document called this, the isms. I don't know if you've seen this. Mm. This is like our sort of corporate philosophy. Oh, nice. Uh, which is, you know, it's kind of a sort of lame thing to put it like corporate values. But, you know, I think it's actually kind of important to get on the same page about like what we sort of believe and think about for this exact reason, which is that, you know, one of these values is feel it to my face, which is basically however you're feeling about me, you should just tell me mm. and you should not worry about it upsetting me yeah. or it uh, causing problems because the honesty is just way more valuable. So get it out there and pick up the pieces later. And I think that's very true for everyone at the company. For me in particular and Alon, since we're founders of the company and what we say has a lot, a lot of weight, I think there's a little more pressure for us to put what we feel in context because, you know, A, we don't have a problem being honest because we've been saying what we feel since the beginning because right. before it was even a company. So we tend to be more honest. 
And also, our words have a lot of force in terms of how people feel, so you've got to put stuff in context and, and, and sort of not expose people to raw you know, feelings that you're feeling at any given moment. Yeah. But I think for most people, though, you should just worry less about saying the wrong thing or exposing you know, some emotion that's actually more extreme than you think because most people err too much on the side of not being honest and being sort of like, well, I just ah, I don't want to bring it and just don't do that. And so I, you know, I do a slightly different thing myself, uh, but I think most people err on the side of, of filtering themselves too much. So I would say just mm. let it out, you know? Yeah. I'm a huge believer in like the power of just like honesty. There's like so much power in the truth where people can get like upset about what the truth is, but not, I think it's hard to get upset with someone for telling the truth. Yeah, well, it's like, you know, a friend, if you have food on your face, your friend tells you that. It's not like, even though that's awkward, but your friend is down to stomach that awkwardness to push forward. Totally. Your non-friend just says, well, I don't want to get involved in this awkward situation, so I'm more nervous about my own feelings. I'm not going to bring it up. And so, you know, I think life, uh, friendship, uh, romance, and especially uh, work relationships is sort of kind of a combination of everything. Right. Uh, you know, you need to be, it's a constant process of telling people they have food on their face and hearing <laughs> that you have food on your face and yeah. wiping it off with your sleeve. Totally. And I think people are hungry for that too. Like I love that kind of feedback. Like when someone tells me something that I didn't know about myself, that's like some of the best information I've, I can get. Like especially if it's like critical. It's like, you know, you're, it was like, I really didn't like the way you handled this, or like, I thought the way this happened was like really not executed well. It's like, that's actually great to know. I, I think that's love important, that. and I think the converse is important too, where it's like, if I'm not saying something, you don't have to worry that I'm holding back. It means yeah. I don't want to say anything. So like, you know where you stand, and you don't have to wonder about the meaning of my silence or whatever, and that, that is an important quality uh, of, of the Odyssey thing as well, I think. Totally. Can you tell me more things that are in this ism socket? That sounds interesting. Sure, sure, sure. So there are 17 isms, and the name isms comes as sort of a straight sort of homage to Dan Gilbert, who kind of really planted the seed in our head to do this specific idea. He's our, let our series be. And, you know, one of the things we really bonded with him over is just the importance of corporate culture, which sounds lame, but is actually really important. It's just like kind of what are you actually about? You know, not what's your product vision, not how are you going to make money, not, you know, what are you trying to accomplish by the end of this two months, but, like, what are you about that's, like, truly fundamental? Who are you? Mm. What's the stuff that wouldn't change, even if you had to pivot or whatever? Yeah. Um, so I think uh, uh, it's kind of important to write that stuff down. So one of those things is um, feel it to my face, which is be honest. Uh, there are a bunch of other uh, important ones. Uh, one that I think is generally important is run into the spike. Mm. And run into the spike basically means whatever you're, whenever you're trying to make the choice between two things or about what to do, just do the thing you want to do the least. Mm. And, you know, it sounds kind of like a weird thing, but like your body, your brain, everyone, every, every part of your psyche is just going to push you to do the easier thing. And sometimes it's obvious, like you're sort of like lying on the couch and considering whether to watch, you know, yet another episode of The West Wing on Netflix or go to the gym or, you know, see a friend or whatever. And it's like, okay, yeah, you should probably go exercise. If you're debating, go whether you go exercise, you don't want to. Yeah, yeah. Probably go exercise. But a lot of times it's less obvious and especially in the context of work. And so it's just like you're sitting down at your computer and there's that hard thing you could do, whether it's like really figuring out this feature or solving this technical problem or, you know, most often putting the bow on something like this is almost done. It's almost done. I just got to get it out and I can't. And you don't do that because you go check your email or you go work on something smaller and more fun. And it's like, no, do the thing you don't want to do. That's the important thing. Another really important notion, I think, that applies specifically to software development mm. is uh, this isn't worse is better. And worse is better is not something like I invented or whatever. It's been around for a while. It actually originally referred to like something slightly different, but when I mean it, 
the way I the way I use it, the way I mean it is like the worse the thing is that you're putting out there in the world, the better. So whatever the bad thing is, the, it's it's actually good. So what I mean by that is when you're trying to release a feature and uh, you want to do a really good thing because you're a detail-oriented perfectionist, like a lot of people who are into building stuff, yeah. you know, you should resist that temptation and, redu- and, and release something that's intentionally bad. And like this is like a sort of well-known idea in software development. You know, if you're not embarrassed by your first version, you should be embarrassed or something. You didn't ship soon enough? That was the one, yeah. yeah, yeah. Or you know, release and iterate. And so you know, it's just something that's important, I think, to hammer home. And worse is better is kind of a stark way of saying it. But it's really important to hammer home this idea, I think, because it's not just about software development. It's about writing a first draft of something, putting something out there in, in the writing context and the sort of company organization context, like how do you organize the company. And it's just do something bad, get it out there, fix it in public, and that's going to that's gonna help you overcome your anxieties because if you try to do something perfect, you'll never do something. Um, and you know the sort of more nuanced thing is that even if you allowed yourself infinite time to plan these things, anything complicated, whether it's social software or interpersonal interaction, it's like too complicated to plan in advance. So yeah. you think you can plan out the system, but actually you've got to release something sort of primitive and then build the system while the ship is at sea, so to speak, just because you're not going to know, uh, you know, you're the dumbest you'll ever be right now. So postpone all the decisions until you know you absolutely have to make them. Yeah. How do you balance that when you have you guys? So you guys have a pretty huge audience at this point, and putting something out there that was like you know you don't want to upset people, right? Like you don't want something that's going to like tarnish your impre- them for their impression of you. Do you like worry about that, or you still sort of stick to that mantra pretty pretty tightly? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a it's a there's a schizophrenia to it because of course you worry about it. So this literally just happened. We made a what what was fairly in some sense a minor change to the usability on the site. So. On our website, there's this thing we call the activity stream, which is kind of like just your notifications, maybe you think of it. So if someone upvotes your annotation or leaves a comment on your annotation or follows you, you get a notification and you're notifying Same as Facebook. Yeah. And uh, we have these notifications and we wanted to build an enhancement to notifications so there'd basically be like an internal scroll on notifications and would be like on the sidebar. Mm-hmm. So instead of this drop down that, you know, there's like this drop down from the top of the page and like you scroll the page and the drop down disappears. The drop down should be on the side and internally scroll. So you could read all your notifications while not disrupting your sort of scroll offset in the document or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so the point is we want to do this kind of some minor inside baseball thing. And this is a feature that people who are very obsessed with the site are interested in, but anyone who's a casual reader is not even that interested. We put this out there, and it generates a huge firestorm really? of people being mega, mega upset and really being mean about it. And, yeah. uh, you know, we all uh, are naturally, like, emotionally affected by this because, you know, someone telling you your thing sucks. And between this and that, it took, like, you know, three or four days to, like, get this out there. It was a mi- minor thing, but you got to still make it pretty good. And so, like, this is emotionally offended. you got to step back and think, okay... This is the point, okay? If we had taken forever, we would have avoided this problem, but it'd be two weeks from now. Uh, and the fact that people, you know, it's a cliche to say, but the fact that people are reacting so strongly to this, you know, feature means they really like the feature. They care a lot about it. They're not being super nice, but that's because it's the internet or whatever. Yeah. Um, so you've got to look at it as a positive thing. And so this is literally happening today. And so, you know, the risk is that you look at this and you think, whoa, like this was emotionally disturbing. So the next time I'm not going to release something until I'm 100% certain that no one is going to say anything mean about it. Right. And that is the constant push and pull. You've got to resist that. No, like people are going to tell you stuff sucks and they're going to be right. And that is the way of the world. That's why you need to constantly be saying worse is better. Otherwise you'll... You know, you'll give in. So was the, was the negative feedback because just because it was different, or because it was different, but it wasn't like wasn't polished at this point? 
it just wasn't polished enough. Like, we uh, didn't sort of think about it being, like, you know, the Windows thing, and it just it didn't work perfectly in that. Yep. And we thought, you know, we thought basically we did some stuff, and we'll fire and see what happens, basically. Right. Like, that was, you know, we could have tried to make it perfect in Windows, or we could have seen what people thought about it. And it's easier to see what people think about it, and that's what we did. And we could have spent a long, we could have fixed this by polishing it for another week, definitely. But like, that's not the best use of time, even if it's the least emotionally traumatic. Right, you might have polished the wrong things. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like you don't know where the pain points are. Exactly. That, that thing you said about the internet is so true. Like that, like people are meaner on the internet, or like they're mean because it's the internet or something. It's like there's something about that anonymity and on both sides almost where you're like how could you guys be so dumb to do this thing I'm so angry with you and like I find this I'm happy in myself and I have to like intentionally tone back when I like message corporate Twitter accounts because like something is messed up and I'm pissed off I have to like really really like tone it back and take deep breaths and be calm and even then when I read it like the next day I'm like oh I'm still kind of a dick yeah I still like was meaner than I needed to be yeah written communication it's not just the I think written communication in yeah. general is tough you want to say something critical of someone or something just be very careful about doing it in writing you probably want to do it via voice instead and that kind of goes for a lot of stuff honestly like email is uh, it's another ism which is being busy does not equal being productive and there used to be one that says email does not be not equal being productive and it's just getting involved in email discussions is so tempting but just so and not productive in, in, in particular in the context of being critical of someone so disruptive I think so you know say it to say it to use your voice totally I saw that there was like a change to like the Y Combinator application where now you need to like have a recorded video as well you can't just like submit the text yeah so no, that was that's been around for a very long time actually we did that yeah yeah but that that makes sense why you would add that in there right because like it's just there's it's so much more density terms of like information per Well, I think the video actually, I mean, I think there's a bunch of nuanced things going on with that in the Y Combinator application that gets to another of the isms, which is pitch like you mean it, uh, which is basically like advice on sort of the most, the highest order bit of advice on giving a presentation. And the most important thing to know, the highest order bit to know when you're giving a presentation is just act like you have, con- don't even, you don't even have to have conviction. Forget that. That's great. But icing on the cake, just act like you have conviction. Act like you're passionate about the thing you're selling. Yeah. And so for a Y Combinator video, it's like, if I were watching a Y Combinator video and the people didn't act passionate, I'd be like, what? this is your thing. Right. This is your, you are doing this. This is literally your thing. I'm, this is not like your company is making you pitch their thing. Totally. This is your thing. You're not excited for it. Like, who else is going to be excited for it? And so, you know, it seems like obvious advice, but very... Surprisingly few people are capable of, of, of acting excited, excited when they're presenting their own thing, which is... I give that exact same advice all the time to people that are doing conference talks, which is like, if you are not excited about this talk, you will get no one in the audience excited. You have to be that main cheerleader. If you're going to stand in front of a group somehow, like you've got to be at least in the top 90th percentile of excited about this thing. Plus, with the Y Combinator videos, you get to do the outtakes. Someday... You know, when all this is over, whatever that means, air quotes, all this is over, we'll release the, uh, the genius Y Combinator outtakes thing. It's got these great gems in there. It's like, Alon's like, we are building the biggest, the best lyric site on the internet. Shit, I said on the internet again. I shouldn't say it. Or, you know, that kind of stuff. Just, yeah. just a ton of, like, small verbal ticks. That's not that interesting. But it was a fun video to make, honestly. Back then, we were very focused on just the lyrics thing. Right. You know, I still think the lyrics thing is is very big, but of course now what we're focused on is a totally different thing in some sense, which is the sort of annotation platform for the whole internet thing, right? Which is uh, a sort of much 
more ambitious undertaking, but in also in a very real way as a sort of just a clear outgrowth of, of the lyrics thing. You know, we, we did this, this lyrics thing, a sort of small market with, you know, a limited set of problems to solve, get people very, very sort of into the idea of annotations and custom annotations and also using the platform. You know, we made some expansions beyond that, but now we're on the sort of precipice of the big time expansion, which is taking the annotations that you know and love from the genius.com destination website and putting them on the New York Times, on paulgram.com, on what's your website? Cogelate. Or ThoughtBots or mine? Yours. Not, not ThoughtBots. Mine. I have ThoughtBots too. ThoughtBots yeah, ThoughtBots too. I have a blog called Cogelate. There you go. Yeah. On Cogelate. So this is uh, embeddable, right? This is like literally on my site. Well, so right now we have a product where you can embed a text that is hosted on genius.com on your site. Right. So if you wanted to sort of master your blog post on our site, and embed it on your site. It would look pretty cool. It matches the styles of your site. It you know injects it right into the page. It doesn't use like an iframe or something. So it's like pretty consistent styling and so forth. And this is a cool thing. You can do it, but it's annoying because you have to go to the main home base genius.com to edit the text or to add annotations. But in the future, you'll have this page on your site, the text on your site, and put a little JavaScript in. And now when you highlight, you can annotate, and your annotations will show up. And you know the annotations of people you follow and like will show up. And the annotations of people you don't follow and don't like will be collapsed. But if people who do follow and want to see them will follow, they'll be hidden or they'll be visible. And then, you know, if someone famous comes and annotates, maybe that'll be visible by default to everyone. And you have to have sort of some mechanism of distinguishing the annotations of being visible to everyone to the annotations visible to only people who follow the annotator and so forth. But but yeah, the basic idea. You know, one clear application is like for news or whatever. And mm-hmm. you, know, you can sort of look at an example of this on Business Insider where we had this article that talked about our Series B fundraising. And we sort of used this to sort of demo what you might imagine in the future, which is someone writes an article about a startup, startup raising money. And so you get to have annotations by the author talking about like footnotes, stuff that didn't make it. That's kind of interesting. But the more interesting thing is the annotations by the subjects of the piece, yeah. annotations by other people who were quoting the piece. Like, did, was I misquoted? Is, did you get me right? You know, annotations from people related to the people in the article who are, you know, can, can offer like more backstory and clarify stuff. And so it's just, you know, you get all these different voices coming together and producing kind of a new document and and you know you can imagine this on on you know one of one of your own blog posts really like I think yep. whenever I'm doing like a coding sort of related blog post and there's some examples of this from the Genius Engineering team like being able to annotate code is just like a really you know great sort of use case for it you know like GitHub has per line comments but GitHub comments are designed to like be resolved or fixed but like annotations that really explain what's going on are. So you might write your own blog post and put your own annotations in, you know, clarifying the, some of the code, and then you know maybe the person who you know wrote the code in the library that you're dissecting can come in and, and mention it. So totally. the sort of idea is that now when people are reading text, they should be thinking about okay, there's the text, but there's this other layer going on and that follows me everywhere I go. Mm-hmm. You know, I sort of think of it as analogous in some sense to the hyperlink. So pre-hyperlink, it was like you're reading a document. Uh, now, post-hyperlink, it's like you have to be thinking, okay, anytime I'm reading a document, I might click a colored or underlined word and go to something else. And that, when it first came out, I'm sure people were kind of like, whoa, like, what is this? But now it's like totally second nature. It's totally obvious. Right. Very weird, even outside of the web, to not have hypertext. Yeah. You know, we're just very used to, you know, Amazon Kindle table of contents, you know, underlined stuff, you click and I guess you go to a different place in the same document. But the point is jumping around between an intra documents via the hyperlink is like a new way of thinking about text. And what we're trying to do is a sort of another version of that, which is now when you think about text, not only do you have to think about hyperlinks, but you have to think about there being this layer of explanation, commentary, 
uh, criticism, context that's on top of that. You know, contribute and, and, and anyone who's relevant either to the text or to you personally can contribute to that and you'll see their contributions depending on who it is and so forth. Yeah. And there is so much stuff you can add there in terms of context and further information and all that. Like that, that part is really exciting to me because like when you read an article that's like in your field, like a niche that you know a lot about, you're like, wow, they're like, they're really missing a lot of things. Like you sort of recognize the holes and the simplifications that are made by like, like a mainstream reporter type person. And so like I can spot those when it's about my industry, but when it's about other things, like I don't know they're there. It's like, oh yeah, this is about dairy farmers, but like I have no way of knowing like what has been left out and what's missing in additional context. There's a name for a phenomenon. Is it the Stephen King something or other? Did Stephen King coin this? I thought there was like a Dunning-Kruger thing or something. Which is where you read an article and you know in so your you field. You read an article in your field and you think, God, these people who wrote this are idiots. They're not the first thing about this. You read an article outside your field and you think, oh, this is interesting. What about an article? Like, exactly. It's probably all correct. You immediately forget that, that feeling, yeah. And so you should really, if you were rational, you would like update your priors about the whole endeavor based on the data that you, from the field you know, and you'd cause you to be more skeptical. But then, yeah, yeah. on the other hand, when you don't know a lot and you see something printed, I mean, it's printed. It must right. be right. It's, it's in Times New Roman. It's literally in Times New Roman. It's on a page. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that's the idea, is you take everyone who is passionate about one particular area, let them go nuts. Then what emerges for everyone else is then, you know, now you're reading something you're not familiar with and, and you get to see people saying, you know, this is totally wrong. Like, well, yeah. Was this sort of born out of like blog comments, basically? Like, that was like, like the, the Stone Age version of this. Someone writes a post and someone chimes in the, at the bottom, right? It's like, no, like this thing was wrong or, you know, nice post. Let me add this bit of detail. And now we've taken those and sort of like added them right where they need to be, right in the context. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that comments, you know, are a great way to tell someone they're wrong or that they suck. <laughs> definitely that is true. Uh, and so in a sense, I think it's just sort of improving that and putting them in line and you know, once they're in line, you have to make other improvements too. Because when they're at the bottom of the page, you can kind of forget about them and say, okay, a thousand comments, New York Times thing, like, ah, whatever. Right. But if they're in line, you can't just put a thousand things in line. Totally. And so because of that, you have to, and you know, the New York Times even does it. Times editor's picks or reader's picks for the comments now. You know, there's some sort of self-enforcing thing here where the thing, you know, 599 out of 750 is not probably gonna get a lot of eyeballs to get voted on to get a, become a reader's pick, but something. So the point being, when they're in line, you have to make some sort of tricky, algorithmic, and human-driven moves to determine what shows up and what doesn't. You know, I mean, I think... Is that your secret sauce? Like, is that what you guys have to kill to be really good? Well, it's interesting. I think there are sort of two things going on. So what we're about is annotate the world. Okay, so that's the idea. So annotation on the world. But what does that actually mean when you think about the notion of annotation? And uh, I think it actually means there are two things sort of going on at the same time. One is this sort of explaining the world... And two is like opening the world up for commentary. So, for example, we started out just explaining the world. In fact, we started out just explaining rap. Right. You know, oh, this line in a song that you think is just some random line is actually a very sort of subtle reference to this other thing. And you would never know that, but here it is. And that is really cool, mm -hmm. you know, just to be able to see this whole hidden world of depth. Like, that's what first made me super excited about hip-hop and super excited about this project was, you know, I'm listening to rap. I'm, I like the beat. The lyrics I can kind of hear. Fine, but no, twist. There's a secret world of mega hidden depth to, to hip-hop lyrics, so yep. let's dive into that. So that was what I really got attracted to. But then, as we move forward, there was kind of this idea of what about the artists themselves? Mm -hmm. So then you need this idea of commentary because you want the artists, like, think about it this way. So if you're writing an annotation trying to explain what Drake meant in a line, you might look for an interview where Drake commented on that line and then say, in an interview, Drake addressed this line by saying blah. And so 
what we we saw this and we saw the need for this, and so we thought, okay, well, why don't we build a product that allows Drake or whoever, instead of having to say something in an interview, which we then quote, that allows Drake to just type something in on the site. And this was the idea of verified annotations. Mm -hmm. And so basically you have these two things going on. You have this sort of like editorial hierarchy that works not so super differently from like Wikipedia in some sense. It's editorial hierarchy of people who are trying to break stuff down and explain stuff. So whether it's explaining the references in a hip-hop song or explaining the references in, you know, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, you know, April is the Cruelest Month is actually a reference to Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, April, forsooth, something, I don't know. But the point being, you, you have that going on. You have this sort of scholarly explanation, unpacking, sort of finding the references. Uh, and you have this commentary thing going on. The commentary thing is sort of most direct in the case of the author of the piece sort of saying, here's the deal with this. Like, this is actually a backstory. There's mm -hmm. a backstory here, and you don't know it. And I'm going to tell you because I'm the only one in the world who knows. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my favorite annotations, like Nas talks about how he came up with this idea for a verse based on a news report he was seeing in the studio. And it's like, there's no way you would ever know that no matter how big of an Oz fan you were. And so, you know, that's kind of the magic of getting the author involved, but it's not just get the author involved, it's get other relevant people involved. Because, like, Nas is probably something to say about a Jay-Z song. Uh, and likewise, you know, you know, T.S. Eliot, if you were alive today, would probably have something to say about Chaucer. Right. And so you want to do that. And then as you push that forward, you very quickly get into this problem of who can write commentary where and who will it show up to. Yeah. You know, and so obviously Nas on a Nas track, that should show up to everyone, game over. But Nas on... You know, the Declaration of Independence, you know, probably still should show up to everyone. Nas is like a pretty sort of culturally relevant, but what about like you would be one example? Mm -hmm. Or what about someone, you know, who's, you know, a less famous like musician? What about like Dej Loaf or something? Like I love her, but uh, maybe, maybe she should only show up to people who follow her on the deck. So that's, that's what you have to sort of figure out once you sort of really open the world up for, for commentary who can write what, where, and who does it sort of show up for? Right. Is the answer yes then to my question of like is that the hard part like do you what what's the hardest part what's the thing you have to solve and have to do well for like this annotate the world idea to work yeah I think the hard part is giving people an easy way to contribute you know highlight and there's a text box and I can write something in it or I see an annotation and there's a button that says reply and I can write something in it mm -hmm. and so giving people an easy way to contribute and when I mean easy I mean like really easy like you're on any page on the internet and it works. You know, you can do it from your phone on any page of the internet. You can do it from the app. You can do it from our web. Like, just it really just feels good. Mm -hmm. And then the software does the right thing. And so maybe does the right thing means no one sees it but people who follow you. Maybe the right thing is everyone sees it, but it's below this other one, which is even more important or something like that. Right. You know, or maybe uh, maybe it gets totally deleted because it's like you know right. horribly offensive or very much misleading or something. Yeah. And so making it easy to contribute and then yet still make sense for a consumption experience not be a total sprawly mess is kind of the tricky part. And of course, another tricky part is just uh, doing this in a way that is uh, appealing to publishers. The end goal is to have, this in, is to have publishers adopt this and embed it on their sites. And so you've got to think about you know, what's a cool thing from an annotator perspective, what's a cool thing from an annotator consuming perspective, but what do publishers want? You know, publisher maybe wants more control than is good for a reader or an annotator, and so how do you sort of, you know, I'm not actually even sure that's necessarily true, but if something like that were true, it's like how do you resolve that tension and, and figure something out? Interesting. I'm going to ask you a weird question. Sure. Feel free to not even answer this. No, this I'll not answer anything. Well, Feel, if you were going to give, if you were going to write a, a set of instructions for a competitor to <laughs> somehow kill genius, mm -hmm. what would you say in there? To kill genius. Well, 
I think if you are trying to build an annotation platform, there's a chicken and the egg problem you have to deal with. Because if you're going out there and you're saying, I am an annotation platform, you are a publisher, great, let's mate or whatever. Like That is a tough sell because the publisher is probably going to be interested in who else has used this? Is this even good? What makes you think this is even good? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's kind of the question is how do you overcome that sort of thing? How do you not only to, as a sales technique, but how do you battle test the platform? How do you get some eyeballs on it? How do you get some users without getting anyone else to buy in? You know, and that was the sort of thing that we inadvertently did sort of in retrospect by building, being our own publisher, by saying, well, mm. you know, there's no good lyric site anyway, and so we're going to be the best lyric site, right. and we're going to use that as a sort of way of bootstrapping and overcoming the chicken and egg problem with our annotation platform. It was like bait. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, in a, I mean, in a sense, it's, we're trying to build a platform and get it onto every publisher, but you want to just build a sort of unified experience first. Right. sort of best possible sort of turnkey experience for the user where it's just like the publisher, the sort of site, and the platform are totally integrated and it's really easy and you get a lot of eyeballs and users on the annotation thing and then you can make it better and refine it and, and, and so forth. And so, you know, that was the sort of trick we used was by being our own publisher of lyrics and my advice to any other annotation platform would be to try to do something like that, to try to get a lot of users in some sneaky way not sneaky in like a bad sense, but sneaky in a counterintuitive sense. Yeah. Such that when you want to go pitch a bigger publisher and spread out, you have a sort of good proof of concept and a good product and something that actually like works. And so, you know, I think we happen to be pretty fortunate in the thing that we picked. You know, music is just one of the most basic elements of like just what excites people and just, you know, that is very important and also it's a good way of getting interesting people involved, you know, musicians, rappers, etc. Like, they're great people to follow and interact with on Twitter or wherever, and it's also great to have them on the Genius platform. And so, I think that combines. And then now, when you, you know, actually have a product that you know that the New York Times or someone can use, you have something that you know has uh, already looks pretty enticing. It's not just like this sort of ghost town, you know. Yeah. So that's how to get started. So let's say I had sort of pulled off that roughly, like where. I guess what I'm probing for is like, where do you think you have a weakness? Like, how would where where could I exploit you? Let's assume I had I, I had my own platform like that. Like, gotcha. where do I come after you guys and like cut your legs out from under you? I mean, I guess if you are under this model right now, where you are primarily venture backed and mm -hmm. sort of looking to explode, like, there's a question of like, you you sort of need to keep raising money and and being funded by this mm -hmm. until you figure out how to turn the money thing on at some point. So like, one way is just like do the opposite and maybe outlast you if it doesn't work out or something. Or like, what's um, this is a weird question. No, I mean, I think it. it's a good question to think about. You know, I mean, obviously we are trying to, you know, anticipate this stuff. So, mm -hmm. you know, for example, I'd say, you know, if we hadn't been thinking about this already, I would say hire very, very smart engineers and pay them a lot and maybe try to poach our engineers by paying them more or something. That'd be one trick. But, like, yeah. we thought of that. So we pay more than anyone else, you know. And so I would definitely sort of you know, push that strategy in any case, which is, like, just... I think engineers, especially in this climate, are underpaid and underappreciated. And so if you're trying to shake stuff up, you know, a good strategy is to come in and say, okay, we're just going to pay more money than anyone else. And that's sort of, you know, what we're trying to do. You even get money without having to take a job from us. Even if you just pass an interview, you get $1,000 cash. And so I think making it a great place for, you know, everyone. And obviously, if you're building a big technical platform, engineers in particular to work and stealing our engineers would be a good strategy. But 
you know, I think we, I hope we've anticipated that. I mean, you know, I think the venture backed thing is definitely, you could take a different approach for that. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, there are a lot of parts of this sort of world that I think are conducive to sort of go big or go home thing. Mm-hmm. Like if you're trying to be the annotation platform, you kind of want to be something that would work pretty much better at scale. And so you want to be able to hit that scale and not, and likewise with lyrics, you know, the sort of the way lyric uh, licensing works and so forth, you kind of want to sort of eat the whole apple, you know, be all of lyrics because that's how you can sort of, you know, justify the sort of time and, and, and so forth that you have to put into like licensing these things, you yeah. know, like even if you're a small to medium sized lyric site, you still have to worry about that. So you might as well be the biggest lyric site. Um, so I think the venture backed strategy is the right way to go. Um, definitely wasn't our first thought. You know, we actually originally incorporated as an LLC because, you know, for tax-related reasons, we were told at the time that was better because we were definitely sure we were not taking any venture capital, which is kind of a lull <laughs> yeah. in retrospect. But, yeah, that was, a, that was a huge pain to switch over to a C-Corp. Yeah, I would say if you could hire better people faster than we can would be a good strategy, basically. Yeah. I think that's probably the biggest sort of, you know, in some sense, the biggest, like, dice roll for us is, like, just can we find enough talented people? And it's very hard, you know. Isn't we, that crazy? Yeah. Like, that's true for everybody, you know? Like, it's, it's amazing how there's such this huge sucking demand for, like, really qualified people that can build stuff out of software and out of bits. And, like, it's just everyone is desperate for this. And, like, you think this would, like, this balance would equalize faster or ever. But so far, it doesn't look like it does. Yeah, well, it's, it's even weird. I think it's very weird. And it's even weirder in light of the fact that everyone's also underpaid. You know, so it's like everyone is desperate for talent and they're not willing to pay anyone any money. And that uh, is the weird thing because that solves this problem, right? Like, yeah, you supply think, and demand is already a spoon. Like, there's not even like it just happens, right? Like, prices change. But the problem is, you can't just go out there and say, here's what the starting salary is for an engineer at this company for some reason, according to like social mores. Can't you though? I don't know. Maybe you get, maybe we should. Maybe you, know? you should. Um, I've heard, you know, from engineers who've been hired here that thought it was a cool company. I was, you know, into the team when I met them. But when I got the offer, I was still surprised. And I would have still treated it differently if I know if I knew what you were really talking about here. And you know, we're very picky, and we're looking for people who are going to be down to like be leaders, which is air quotes, kind of like a cliche. But it's really true. Like the company is small now. There are eight engineers who work here. I guess nine if you count me, but I'm not doing that much coding anymore. And it's like you know, this thing's going to grow and be big. And who's going to be you know leading the charge when we get big? And we're trying to hire those people now and say it's be really good, and we want to pay them a lot of money and treat them really well. And so I think it is perplexing that engineers uh, are in such high demand and are still so underpaid and part of that is our weirdo culture where you can't you know talk about money isn't that like that could be it right like i guess that could be one of the things but uh, it feels like it feels like demand for engineers has i don't know doubled in the last couple years but engineering engineering salaries have not doubled yeah not even close so like what there is probably something that's preventing that and i wonder if it's just like the lack of talking about i'm like a proponent of talking about that stuff because i think it helps I agree, too. I yeah. totally agree. So what would you pay an engineer? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> a really good one. I, Can you say, I say it? It's it dangerous for you to say, right? Because you have existing people. And they'll hear this and go, wait, but why am I getting X? No, I mean, I, I don't think that is why I'm uh, so why I'm reluctant. I don't, I don't think I, I, I think everyone who's, who's currently at the company is, is being paid, you know, tippy top of market. I just, I don't know. I just got to think about it. I think it's like kind of maybe... It's just a tricky, tricky subject. I want to be like careful about like what 
I like put out there. Isn't that weird? But it's more weird? out there. It's more than whatever you're making. Like, maybe call weird? me. I'll tell you. How Isn't it that? weird that you don't want to say? 5281 Just call see, me. See, you just said your phone number. Yeah. But you're more willing to share your personal phone number than you are what a starting salary is at your company. Well, maybe I'm willing to share the starting salary. I just haven't thought of it before this. Yeah, this I'm not trying, I'm not trying to get you to really disclose it. I'm just like commenting on how I bizarre this is. It is. I agree with you. It's very bizarre. Yeah. And I've thought about this before. And I don't know the right answer. And I think that because, you know, it's funny, like, I think there's a um, great guy, great author, this dude, uh, Patrick McKenzie. Have you heard of him, Patrick McKenzie? Yep. And he wrote this, uh, a bunch of great essays, but one essay about how to get a raise and how to negotiate. And, uh, you know, it's called Don't Call Yourself a Software Developer or something. And, you know, it's got a bunch of great stuff in there, but he talks about the sort of cultural norms around talking about money in America. says it's almost as if there is a capitalist conspiracy designed to affect, you know, the social mores of America and the Western world and probably the whole world such that the workers, the people making salaries are brainwashed to, against their interests, feel embarrassed about talking about the thing that if they all talked about it would help them against management. Right. And what I'm trying to say is like, I'm in management and I want to talk about it because it's better here and that's the whole point and we want to attract people based on that. Not to say that money is the most important thing in the world. It's not everything. It's not even the most important thing, but it is something. Yep. And uh, you know, it's but it's, money, it's other you know perks too. I think money is. It's also money is a symbolic thing, which is like, look, you are valued, uh, you are appreciated. It's kind of like I'm not trying to say we pay more money so you'll be able to buy more stuff, although that's true. But it's also like we pay more money, which is a metaphor for we expect a lot and appreciate you a lot and right now you're being underpaid and underappreciated it's kind of also a symbolic thing but I don't know maybe maybe we can, can, know, can follow up from this and can, can yeah maybe in. but can you unpack for a second what is giving you pause what is the downside that is behind just talking numbers well I think it will be seen as, as weird and I think that is a, uh, a bad answer you know I think obviously you know, I'm, I'm talking about a context where I'm reaching out to someone like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, trolling GitHub late at night and I see someone who's, you know, got a good profile and, you know, it's obviously not just about your GitHub and it's not just about number of stars you have and, you know, big ups to Sarouche, iOS developer here, most stars of anyone who works here, it's like 600 plus or something. It's not just about that, but like maybe you find that you want to hit someone up. So you find that you hit them up yeah. and, you know, one thing you mentioned uh, in that email is uh, you'd get a raise or whatever you're making now. And then why don't I just say, if you got a job, we would offer you X. Because, you know, I have a pretty good idea of that. And I think the main reason is I don't want to come off as, as, as a weirdo. And, and, and I think, you know, I pay some attention to this because my natural impulse, you know, is to be a little informal, a little jokey. You know, and I think genius, obviously, especially when we're called rap genius, had a certain reputation of... You, know, you wear sunglasses on stage, just don't do that. Just That's one piece of advice. Do not do that. Even if you think it's a joke, it's just no one's going to like the joke. Okay, don't do that. I could more, be one of your isms. Yeah, don't. Just, Number 18. And so, yeah, why don't I, you know, I'm, I'm, I didn't think wearing sunglasses on stage would be a big deal either. But, it, you know, now that TechCrunch disrupts freaking interview shows up, you know, it's like a genius Godwin's law, you know, like uh, mm -hmm. it shows up with probably one in any sufficiently long discussion about our company. Uh, I don't think I said anything that crazy in that interview, by the way. It's just the look, which, again, was a joke. And, again, I'm sorry. But the point being is that I worry that uh, people would get the thing and uh, they think this is weird or awkward. And part of that's cultural and part of that is our – like, here's an example. Okay, so we came up with this idea in relation to this, which is – I mentioned earlier. It's called the Genius Genius Grant. And it's kind of a play on the MacArthur Genius Grant. So yeah. the Genius Genius Grant is kind of a joke. And the idea is you come in. 
you pass the interview, you get a job offer mm-hmm. to be an engineer or anything technical, you get $1,000 cash. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the idea behind this was like, look, A, if you pass the interview and you pass our bar, even if you don't want to work here, like, I want to be your friend and like show you love. Here's a thousand dollars. It's also an incentive to get people to interview. Although sure. how big of an incentive is it really? Like a really good person maybe like doesn't care about a thousand dollars. It doesn't want to feel like they're doing something for a thousand dollars. And so maybe it's bad, but it's something we tried. Yep. And, um, in the post, I made a gif of me taking a thousand dollars and throwing it in the air in slow motion using uh, the sort of now inferior, uh, iOS seven slow motion, 120 FPS instead of 240. But point mm-hmm. being, I made this thing of throwing money. Yeah. Okay, and this idea was it was sort of, um, it's kind of cool looking, it's a cool looking GIF, mm-hmm. I'm being playful, and the idea I'm trying to get across is I, if you are a good developer, I want to show you love and shower you with cash, even if you don't want to come work here. So it's, it's kind of a nice sentiment, I thought. Yeah. But then, you know, flash forward whatever amount of time, and then that GIF gets, you know, posted uh, out of context in some, you know, Valleywag article about Silicon Valley or Alley or whatever, excess, and I look like an idiot mm. or whatever. And what I was thinking at the time is I'm trying to do this fundamentally positive thing. It's not like I'm trying to say, look how much money I have. I'm trying to say, I'm trying to shower money on great developers, even if they don't want to work here. I'm trying to do it in a funny, quirky, like sort of visually in- interesting way. And now I feel basically like that was a dumb move because now my, that gif is out there and I look like an idiot. Huh. And so, you know, that's you so interesting. So it's an image problem. In you're this case, it's literally an image problem. Wor- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So no See, more images of throwing money, but the, but the point is like I just don't want to like you don't want to approach things from a perspective of fear, and uh, if you're worried about offending people, that's probably the wrong thing to worry about unless your company is like pretty big, and I think you know we have crossed some kind of threshold where it's worth worrying about offending people. But like yeah, with stuff like money, which is just intense from a sort of emotional, you just got to be careful, and maybe maybe nothing bad would happen if I said, hey, by the way. If you pass the job interview, we would pay you X, and here's the signing bonus or whatever. Like maybe nothing bad would happen. I'd have to think about it. But with money, you know, maybe your gif ends up on on Valleywag, and and you know, you look like an idiot. Hmm. This is fascinating. This is this is this is weird. I like I like this weirdness. This is real shit. Money is a very real and complicated thing. You've got to be down to talk about it. Like that's something like. At previous companies, like, and talking to other people with their experiences, like, if you go in and you ask your boss for a raise, how your boss acts in that moment tells you basically everything you need to know, in my opinion, about your relationship with that person. Is that person going to be, like, real with you? Is that person going to, like, sort of talk to you about the real issue and either give you a straight answer and if the answer is no, tell you what you can do to get a raise? Or is that person going to basically make you feel bad for asking? Is that person going to say, oh, I see what motivates you now. Like, Hmm. you should feel bad. Like, it's not about the money. Like, well, that person's a bad boss. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. But people do this kind of stuff. Yeah. Like, people act weird about money and not in not a straightforward way in companies. And my claim is that, you know, you should really be straightforward about it as a boss, uh, as a manager in all cases. And I wish that we could be more open as a world. I have two, two thoughts on this. One is, so I've now been in the position of, like, deciding somebody's race. Yeah. Um, like, recently for the first time in my life. And so one of the things I've tried to do is be really open about, like, where the money comes from, like here are the financials, here's what we did last quarter, here's how much money we have, here's how much we can pay, here's what raise I got, and like talk about like mm-hmm. these sort of things. And I think like, again, I'm super believer in the truth, so like I think laying it out there is kind of a decent default, is like let me explain like clearly what we can do and what we can do and, and what's going on. And I think that's sort of a nice angle to take on that. And yeah, and I, I can't really imagine what else you would do otherwise, that doesn't suck. And another thing on that is, so I gave a talk recently where I said, I think people should be more willing to share their salary with their coworkers. So I think it helps you. Like, 
information asymmetry is if you have less information, you're at a disadvantage in the negotiation, right? Like, so you have 10 employees underneath, underneath you, so you know all 10 salaries. One of, their, one of the employees comes to you and only knows that, they only know their own salary and they have less information. If, they, they, if they're the lowest paid person, they could use that information to get a higher salary very likely. And so I basically said people should share their salaries. And as I was researching this, I found that sharing your salary with your coworkers is actually a protected right. Mm-hmm. You like you, the companies cannot prevent you from doing that, and that was a fascinating disclosure for me or discovery for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know I'm a big believer. If you're setting someone's salary, you have to do it with the assumption that everyone's going to know everything. Mm-hmm. You know, that's always my attitude, basically, which is if you're doing something that relies on people not talking, forget yeah. salary in any context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you're probably you know you can count on some amount of privacy between your company and the world. Uh, but that's even stressful, not because people leak things, because it's hard to keep secrets. Someone asks you a direct question, but it's like, it's hard to keep secrets. We kept our Series B secret for like five months. That was a stressful thing. Yeah. You know, people be like, so what's your board? Or like, so your board is just three people? and Or four people? be like, no, uh, there's actually Dan Gil. Oh, oh, no. It's just like hard to keep secrets. So like keeping it between company and the world's hard, but somewhat possible intra-company is very difficult. And I don't even think that is rarely good. Like you want to have like openness. And so... You know, I think you want to make this, these decisions with the idea that people talk. On the other hand, it is complicated because if you tell someone someone else's salary, you know, what you really want to do is give someone a picture of what's going on. Like, this is the person's sort of responsibilities. This is how they've done. This is what they've taken on. And here's their salary. And so the salary information alone, out of context, uh, you know, can be, you know, misleading. And because money is emotional, it's like... I'm trying to make things fair if everyone knows everything, but if I printed out a list of everyone's salary and left on the table, like I would feel like I'd better, you know, go, you know, not do that basically. And uh, likewise, I think you know when companies share all the salaries internally, like I think there's something very good about that, but I think it's it's also a challenging thing. Like there's a lot of context uh, that you have to give uh, behind these decisions. If only there was some sort of platform where you could annotate things with right. additional yeah, yeah. context. Here's, well, we annotate everyone's, everyone's salary here. But so you can annotate your HR uh, system that has the salaries in it or something? Yeah, I mean, you know, definitely any internal document that we produce, we like to put on the site. I still write it in Google Docs. It's easier, but I like to put it on the site. Like, the isms are up there, and there's debates oh, nice. on uh, between people in the company about, like, I think this is wrong and that kind of stuff, and I think that's very important. That's part of, like, the openness thing, like, just... You know, vacation policy, like, make it annotatable. Like, whatever it is, make it annotatable. Let people comment. That's cool. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. We've done a lot here, but this has been awesome. I appreciate you chatting. Yeah, this is a great, this is a great thing. Yeah. This was fun. I'm I'm feeling it. And if you, uh, if you change your mind and you want to talk about what starting salary is for a genius engineer, you let me know. Well, you know, I'm really going to think about that, actually. And think about why you don't want to, because that, to me, is almost a more interesting question. Yeah. Because there's something emotional in there, I think. I'm curious about it. Yeah, well, it's just like, why didn't I want to share the gift of me throwing money? I did want to. Because you were worried that, <laughs> No, I did. But, like, but how can people are, like, make fun of you for paying too much money or something? Like, it's not oh, make fun of it. Are they going to be like, like, you're irresponsible? You're, like, paying too much? Or you're, like, well, trying to show the criticism would be, like, you are a perfect symbol of, you know, Silicon Valley excess. Ah, I see. And that is high. you. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's what people said about, like, it's like when people watched our TechCrunch thing, and said, this is just like the Startup Guys YouTube video. It's like, well, we were, you know, it, that was the point. But, like, we were uh, being a symbol of a certain negative, gross, icky side of a side of a world, which is often reviled for being, like, trivial and icky and douchey or whatever. And so it's like, I don't want to hold back, but I just don't want to be a symbol of that. And isn't, that, that. isn't that a bitch, though? Like, your corporate decisions are being 
affected by, like this might be a good recruiting tool, right? If you were like, we pay this much, boom, mm -hmm. and then 5,000 Ruby developers listen to this podcast, and yeah. you're like, wow, it's pretty good for us to have people know that, and like know that we're serious, but you have to also juggle the world's perception of you. It's kind of weird. Like, I guess perception is a reasonable thing to have, but like, to be, uh, it seems, it seems hamstringing almost. It's not only weird, but it's so different from how it used to be. So like, in the early days, it was just like anything to get anyone to care about anything. We do. Right. And so it's like, yeah. you're worried about upsetting someone? Like, how about this? Worry about someone caring that you exist. Yeah. And so we spent a long time operating under this philosophy, which anyone out there starting their own company, like, that is the philosophy. Don't be like me now. Don't worry. Uh, don't be like I now. Don't worry that you're going to upset people. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, no one cares. So that's what we operated under for a long time. Make as much noise as possible. Just do whatever. Just, like, be creative. Make noise. Be weird. Be offensive. Like, just, you know, just get, your, get, get noticed, you know? Mm -hmm. And then it changed, uh, for us at least. Now it's very, very different. It feels foreign to me because, like, in my heart... I thrive in the context of no one cares and no one wants to notice me and I'm trying to like prove them wrong. It's harder to sort of be like, oh, is everyone you know, in the world perfectly understanding like what we're trying to like do here? And you know, that's in some sense a fool's errand, like perfectly understanding, but you do have to think about it when you're in our situation and you know, good problem to have. The real truth is I'm just happy to be here. You know, like any negativity about any any hating on me anyone does on any interview or anything public thing or me throwing the money it upsets me it makes me think about stuff and figure out how I can do better but most of all it just makes me think you know what I'm happy to be in a situation where people are criticizing my public things rather than ignoring me which is what they did for a long time so I'm happy to be here it's good it is you know something I always like think about and, and try to do better on but Got a good job. My family's healthy. Jed Bartlett style, you know, like that's. I don't. Want, I'm right. not trying to apply that. I see myself as the president character. By the way, I'm just saying he has a lot of wisdom. Okay. Yep. It's not like I'm trying to say. Just let me be clear on that. There's that image management. Things. <laughs> there it is. Just gotta be careful. All right. Let's Oof. stop it there. Oof, that this was a lot great. of fun. That, that was, was a lot great. of fun. Thanks a lot. So that's it. I hope you enjoyed the interview. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 120. That's right. We have a new URL. We are so official and so legit. This podcast was edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening.